Okay, so welcome back to 1 Samuel. I was asked before class if we were going to do 2 Samuel, and the answer to that is yes. We'll, go, we'll, go, we'll do 1 Samuel and we will roll right into 2 Samuel because when you get to the end of 1 Samuel, there's no ending there. In, because for the Jews, it was all one book. It's just one scroll. It's the book of Samuel. And it was just artificially divided into two. So we will do 1 Samuel and we will go into 2 Samuel and beginning in, in 1 Samuel 16, the story of David begins and it will go all the way through the rest of Samuel and he isn't even dead when you come to the end of the book of Samuel. Okay, so we may leak into 1 Kings just so we get to David's, you know, David's death, which is a poignant story. So, okay, so here we are. I have no big announcements. Patty and I will be here on Tuesdays um, for a while. We don't have any plans that would take us away. So, let's just do this. Anything, um, it's, it's streaming. Patty's now noticing the shades. Well, yeah, I'm just saying how awesome they are. Is it awesome? It looks much better. Can you see me better? Yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> Good answer. Do I, do I look cute, Patty? Okay. <laughs> hey, you came for this. So, um, <laughs> so any questions? Anything y'all would like to talk about? Remember, this is a place where you can come and you can bring questions. They don't have to be about 1 Samuel. They could be about Bible, theology, anything at all. I'm happy to, to, to be helpful. All I want to do is to be helpful. That's my, that's my reason for being here, is to be helpful to you. Yes? Every day for me is miscellaneous question day. Yes. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah, 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 so this is, I can remember in high school, I can remember high school in, in the, in, in the mid-60s, mid we would think we were all like, you know, thinking deep thoughts and all that kind of stuff, standing out in front of the high school debating, and so the, the question always comes up, well, where does Cain's wife, where, where does she come from, right? Exactly. And that is a clue to what? that you're not getting, you know, a journalistic report of how things happened, okay? It's really not a question the story wants you to ask. It isn't the point. What's the point of Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve? That they got kicked out of the garden and then Cain kills his brother. That's the first act after they are expelled from the garden because they have rebelled against God is murder. Not just murder, but fratricide. And it, it really sets the stage for everything that happens. So there are all kinds of questions. I remember one reformed theologian named, gosh, I, now I can't come up with his name. Anyway, he, he posed the question like, what kind of leaves are on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You know, his, who cares? It's not, it's not how we should come scripture. I'm going to teach a, uh, in my Sunday morning class in a couple of weeks we're going to start a series on the Bible because there's a fella down in Australia named Michael Bird. He's a theologian, biblical scholar, interesting fellow, and he wrote a book 
titled something like seven things I want Christians to know about the Bible. So I looked at the list and I said, bing, 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 yes, 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 yes. So I decided to build a class around it, a little series around it. One of the things he says is, well, you know, I can't do an Australian accent. But he says, maybe like around the Barbie, okay, I, I've lost friends over this. I've lost friends over this. Because I refuse to say I read the Bible literally. I read it seriously. And then he goes on to say, nobody actually reads it literally. Because if you try, you will run into a jillion questions like you ask that are not answerable because it's not, it's not what the text is there to do. It's not what the story is there to do. It's not why, it's not why the story is passed down across the generations of, of the Israelites and Jews and to you and to me, right? So seriously, but don't fall into the trap of thinking that means literally, whatever that might mean in people's words. He just, he just says, we just gotta get rid of that word. Let's take it seriously, and that's where I am. I wanna take it seriously. Okay, that was a good question. Yes, yes. Anything else? Okay, let's open with prayer. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. We're grateful for this fellowship, a nice full room, people online here coming together to see one another, to, to study your word. We, we're just so blessed to be able to have an hour and a half or so on a Tuesday to, to come together to study 1 Samuel, to, to, to strive to get to know you better, to hear your revelation of yourself and the story of Israel. That is, that, it's, uh, that is our story as well. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in 1 Samuel. Last week we did chapter 10. We're going to pick up right at the last paragraph of chapter 10. And um, I, I think it will help if we remember that everything about Saul is pointing somewhere other than Saul. The story of Saul and the way it's written and the way it's told is always pointing you toward David. Because David is the idealized king of Israel. David is um, the king that future generations would look back on. That's, that, that's, we need a king like David, okay? So um, the Messiah, this, the anointed one, was to come from the line of David because of a, God, of a promise that God makes to David that we will read in 2 Samuel probably Christmas time or something. I don't know when we'll get there, but it doesn't matter, right? So, so just remember that because what's, let's just review for a second. God was to be the king of the Israelites. They demanded a human king. They went to Samuel, Samuel went to God, God said, Samuel, they're not mad at you, they are rejecting me, and you need to warn them. And so Samuel, in chapter eight, goes back to them and warns them about kings, that they're takers, 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 takers. That word takers is a word that you need to circle and you need to remember. And every time it shows up, you need to take, <laughs> to take note of it. 
Okay, you need to take note of it. It's important. They're takers, 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 takers. But the people insist, and as I said, God respects them, us, enough, sufficiently to give us the freedom to live with the consequences of our decisions for good or for ill. He doesn't treat us like children. There's, there's a lot of metaphors in Scripture about parent and child, but um, every metaphor only goes so far, right? So you can't go too far with that. Um, we, we bear the consequences of our decisions. The Israelites will bear the consequences of their decisions. So God sends Samuel to a man named Saul, who looks the part. I did not bring the cartoon illustration of Gaston again. I thought you might run me out of the room if I did. So he's tall, right? But we're told in Scripture, in, in the God's holy word, we get a physical description of Saul. Right? Never quite. Do you get a physical description of Jesus anywhere in Scripture? No. But you get one of Saul. He's tall. He's really good looking, a really big strapping guy. Why do you think we're given a description of Saul's physical appearance? I think it's because he looks the part. He looks like the king would look, right? Is that going to... Okay, we're going to go ahead here just because I want to. So, so who succeeds Saul as king? David, this tiny little, you know, he's probably a teenager, doesn't have much hair on his chest, kind of kid out in the back tending sheep. He's going to, does he look like a king? No, he does not look like a king when we meet him in 1 Samuel 16. But Saul does. You know, that right there to me is, I could preach that, you know, for an entire Sunday. Maybe you shouldn't, but I could. Okay, so, so, so then we get these successive stories of Saul's being made king. The first story we get is Samuel anointing him. And this is kind of a thing between God and Samuel and Saul. The next story we get is a public recognition of God's choice because they go through the drawing of lots. Right? Tribe by tribe, clan by clan, you get the, you get the drawing of lots because it is a way that God, way the people can see that Saul is God's choice. And Saul is God's choice. Obviously because God sent Samuel to Saul. And we are, we are still not through with this, with the stories of Saul being acknowledged, installed as king. So with that said, turn in your Bibles. I will turn in my iPad <laughs> to 1 Samuel 10. Oh, go to verse 25. So, after the people, 1 Samuel 10, verse 25. This is where we ended up last week. 1 Samuel 10, verse 25. And I'm going to go ahead and just 
put up the map right there as, as good, good background. We'll get to a couple places there in a minute. So, Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before Yahweh, because this is a holy moment. It's a holy moment. The king is God's choice. This is God's doing. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own houses. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah. Gibeah is in, well, let me look at the next map. What I did was I, I took this map and all, there's so much of this action is happening within the red circle. It doesn't matter so much exactly where every little place is, but it's all kind of in the center. This is Jerusalem right here. Um, the Dead Sea here, Jerusalem, and this is all, there's a little bit of a relief map thing there here to show you that there is this ridge line that runs down the spine of Israel and we're, that's where we are. Gibeah, all these place names we're going to run into here are all in that same little area right there. It's not big. Somebody asked me last week how far these places, how far apart were these places. Not far at all. If you are, if you go to the Jerusalem and you go to the top of the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives is another kind of, it's more like a ridge mountain, not a peak mountain. And you stand on the top of it to where you can look down on Jerusalem on one side and you turn, you can see if the day's cleared off the Dead Sea. So the distances just aren't that great. Okay, it's not that, that big a place. So Saul's, Saul's home, don't ask me what that's about. All Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. So despite the fact that they went through all of this, there are some who are not with Saul. They are what in 2023 we would call never Saulers. <laughs> That's bad. That's, what, that's kind of a bridge too far, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're going to remember, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I have my tricks. So, so, so there are these fellow people who are not with Saul. And what does that prepare you for? What's going to be conflict. What's going to happen? Kings in this world are not like kings in most places in our world. Kings in this world are completely autocratic. They are completely in charge. Their rule is absolute. Right? So, so there's, nothing, there's nothing really democratic about the king's rule. The king, that's why in the ancient world people had to get bumped off usually to get them off the throne. If you read the story of the Caesars, what are the stories of Caesars about? Poisonings, killings, murders, all this stuff, because that was the only way you could get rid of some scoundrel in, on the throne, was to, because otherwise they were there for life. But Saul kept silent. He didn't respond to the scoundrels. Chapter 11. Now, Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. 
So let me go back to this slide. Whoa. This slide. And I put an arrow to show you where J. Bash Gilead is here and where Ammon is. These are the Ammonites. The Ammonites are the people, usually, usually enemies of Israel, on the eastern side. Okay? The Ammonites. When the, is, when the tribes settled in the Promised Land, about two and a half of the tribes settled on the eastern side, roughly. Um, Reuben, Gad, maybe just part of another of those. This slide doesn't, doesn't show it very well. And Jabesh Gilead is on the eastern side of the Jordan River, but it is, it is, in, it is, um, it is in the land controlled by the tribe of Gad. Gad being one of the sons of Jacob. Okay? So the king of Ammon, like I said several weeks, is pushing westward, right? And that's creating conflict with Israel. Who, who, pushes, from, who pushes eastward against Israel? Yeah. So they have enemies on the east. Those are the Philistines. They have enemies on... Those are the Ammonites. They have enemies on the west. Those are the Philistines, right? There are big empires to the north. Go far enough south, who do you find? Egypt. Egypt's right around the corner, <laughs> as it were. Okay. So Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all of the men said, all of the men of Jabesh said to him, "Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you." Now that's not a good thing. But they're scared. I get that. So they're willing to basically want to, they want to live in peace and they're willing to live under Nahash's rule in order to secure that peace. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you, this would be the men, and so bring disgrace on all Israel. So Nahash, who was offered on a golden platter what you would think he wants, decides in addition to taking it, he has to humiliate the Israelites. Now I would suggest another thing is he knows that if he takes the right eye of all of the men of Jabesh Gilead, then their fighting ability will be dramatically reduced. But that's the explicit point is because he wants to humiliate them and bring disgrace on all Israel. So the elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so we can send messages throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. Now you might wonder, like, well, why is he going to give them seven days? Because he doesn't really have a lot of choice. You could besiege these cities. But to take them by force is a big effort. So it's not surprising that he says, okay, go out, see if you can get any help. Um, because I think Nahash would prefer they surrender than having to, to um, break, break into the city. All right? 
when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, that's his hometown, that's back in the center area, that's back, back, back in here, right, right there. This is Jerusalem, so we're talking about right in here. All right. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Now just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, well, what's wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Tell me what's going on. Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. Hmm. Well, this is a problem for the king, isn't it? This is a this is a direct confrontation, really, to this new king of Israel. What will he do? They haven't had a they haven't been united under one king before. Now they are. And what will Saul do? Well, when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God, however you want to, Holy Spirit, God being with Saul, whatever it is, came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. Gouge out their right eye. He took a pair of oxen, he cut them into pieces and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of Yahweh, this fell on the people. This is a sense of impending doom is what that is. And they came out together as one. So Saul, and God work together to have Israel respond to the plea from Jabesh Gilead. Saul threatens them, and God fills them with this terror of Yahweh, this sense of impending doom. And so the tribes who probably kind of want to stay out of this, what do they really care about Jabesh Gilead? Yeah, they're, they're distant, you know, cousins, but really they're even on the other side of the river. But they're all going to respond as one. Okay? Now, when Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and those of Judah 30,000. Now, I was asked last week about these numbers, about the size of the armies. These numbers are exaggerated. I was asked, well, why do they exaggerate them? I speculated, you know, it, it's a way of giving honor and worth. It's a way of talking of, of lifting up the power and strength of um, uh, Saul and of Israel, but the numbers are too big. You think it's just where I'm standing? Just this spot. We'll try it here. It's like a dead spot? Huh. Okay. We'll try it over here. Okay. The Roman army, in the time of Jesus, and after the time of Jesus, with a population sweeping from Britain all the way across the Mediterranean, all the way eastward, the Roman army numbered about 300,000 soldiers. 
you just you just couldn't mount bigger numbers. There's not enough people in Israel to have 400,000 fighting men. It's just not, you can't sustain them. I was reading about this, I don't know, I was curious. So there was a Prussian general in the 19th century who was just trying to figure out how many people, how large an army he could sustain. And it wasn't anywhere near the numbers that you and I are used to speaking of, like in World War I or World War II or even the Civil War. Everything was transformed in the middle of the 19th century by railroads, telegrams, the ability to move food, troops, and the rest of it. Not in this world. How would you feed 400,000 people? You couldn't tell them to go forage the land. There ain't nothing there. <laughs> It's, it's just brown. So, yes. No, no. So, it, this is not uncommon in ancient literature to find the size of armies elevated. Okay? It's showing honor, worth, your strength, if you're the one writing the story against your enemies and that kind of thing. But the numbers are elevated and I just would not, not I would take the numbers seriously, but not literally. How about that? Okay. Ah, yes. <laughs> they now. Okay. So he's got a good. So the the what's the point here in verse nine? In verse eight. A lot of people. A lot of people. Even more importantly, everybody's responded. They're going to fight as one. All the tribes are sending soldiers. That's the key point. They told the messengers who would come, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. And they said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you like. Okay, so there's a little tricky stuff going on there, right? Yeah, sure, this is war. A little tricky stuff. The next day Saul separated his men into three divisions. And during the last watch of the night, that is the early morning, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So the Israelites army arrives the Ammonites are sleeping in, thinking that they're just going to be surrendered to the next day. They've ordered room service and all the rest of it, right? And boom, in sweeps the Israelites, overrun them, slaughter them, scatter them, send them away. The Israelites are victorious, and the residents and city of Jabesh Gilead are safe. Okay? The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Who are those never Saulers? <laughs> Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. Because why? What, what, what's happened? Saul's a hero. Kings were the chief warriors. Kings were the ones who led their people into battle. And this king has demonstrated his worth. 
He has led his people into battle against the Ammonites and he has been victorious. So everybody now is ready to turn on those scoundrels who were scoffing at Saul being king. But Saul said, no one will be put to death today for this day Yahweh has rescued Israel. Now, if you want to mark down like really good Saul moments, this is one. This is a really good Saul moment because he doesn't, he doesn't emphasize what he has done, right? Not what he has done. It is what God has done. It is what God has done. That, that is the pattern in the book of Joshua, when they come into the promised land and they are conquering cities and towns, when they do what God says they win, when they don't, they lose. But Saul gets it right. You know, um, Saul will have some bad moments, not very far ahead. But this is a good Saul moment. They've all been good Saul moments to this point. Saul has demonstrated you know, that people may have scoffed at him, but yes, he is the king of Israel. He's led him into battle now, right? Um, no one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. And Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, in that same area, and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of Yahweh. Now that's a funny thing to us, isn't it? Because he's been anointed, they've drawn by lots, and now it's as if none of that had happened. Now there are people who think these are just multiple strands of stories which all come to here and they're not really directly related. I don't. I just think it's, it's, it's all a way of emphasizing the magnitude of the choice to abandon God as their king and embrace Saul or anybody else as their king. But it's, it's just putting that stamp again, he's the king, he's the king, he's the king. They made Saul king in the presence of Yahweh and they sacrificed fellowship offerings before Yahweh and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration, right? They're celebrating their victory. They're celebrating Saul as king. Um, they've renewed their pledge to Saul as king. The, notice there's nothing said about the never Trumpers. The really other good moment for Saul is that you would think, are they never Trumpers? <laughs> okay. All right. I'm on a roll. Yes, I am. So the never Saul, Saul doesn't put them to death. So if you want to mark a second really good moment for Saul, it's the one where he says, no, no, nobody's going to die. Just because they don't, just because they oppose me or they scoff me, they don't have to die for that. That is, that is something really, in a lot of ancient kingdoms, very counter to the way kings were. Kings tended to feel under threat. Why? Because they knew that the only way you would get rid of them was by basically killing them, assassinating them. That's why they had, you know, over the course of human history, you know, 
food tasters and cup tasters and all kinds of other things. Okay? So, thoughts, questions, observations about the story of the Ammonites and Saul's good moments, Saul the king? All right. Next week I'll put these two tables together on this side of the room, I think. All right. So, now, Samuel is going to make a farewell speech to Israel. And it's poignant and it's important. You know, sometimes when you come to these long sections of scripture where it's like a long speech or something like that, it, it can get, you know, the action falls away. It can get not as interesting, but we need to avoid that. I mean, take, for example, the New Testament. In the book of Acts, it's basically a book of sermons with some action happening in between them. And that's the way Luke writes it, because it is a proclamation of the good news. So it's in these speeches, like Saul's, he, Saul gives here, that you really get to see the truth behind the action. So, Samuel said to all Israel, they're all gathered there, celebrating this victory, offering up fellowship offerings, says, I have listened to everything you have said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I'm old. I'm gray, and my sons are here with you. <sighs> Gotta figure he loves his sons. What do we know about his sons? Remember earlier, a few chapters ago? There were kind of disappointments, right? But that's all that's said here. My sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Remember we met him as a young boy when God called him in Eli's house? He says, here I stand, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Meaning, if you have something that you've been holding back about me or my leadership or my judgeship, you need to speak up now. What does it we say in marriages, weddings? Speak up now or forever hold your peace. Here I stand, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Kings are takers. Samuel's not a taker. Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right just makes me think of little Zacchaeus. I call him, look, he's a short little fellow. In Luke 19, Jesus is coming through town. Zacchaeus climbs the tree to get a look at him. And we find out he's a tax collector, which means he's spent a life collecting money he's not really due. That's what tax collectors did. They would collect taxes, they owed Rome, and then they'd take as much more as they possibly could. And he invites Jesus invites himself to lunch at Zacchaeus's, and there Zacchaeus promises to go back 
and repay fourfold everyone that he has cheated. And Samuel says, if I have done something that I should, if I've cheated somebody, I will make it right. And everybody says, you have not cheated and you have not oppressed us. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, Yahweh is witness against you and also his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. Meaning, you know, God has got his eyes on this. You're standing here saying, I, I have not cheated you, I have not oppressed you. And they said, yes, he is witness, as God is my witness. That, that's a phrase I've heard a lot over the years, as God is my witness. That's basically what they're saying. As God is my witness, Samuel, you have not cheated us. You have not oppressed us. You haven't taken our donkeys or anything else. Then Samuel said to the people, it is Yahweh who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Almost always, um, when the Hebrews slash Israelites, slash Jews, would tell their story, it begins with the rescue from Egypt. The rescue from Egypt. Um, and it is the great salvation story for the Israelites, slash Jews. For us, it's Jesus and the cross. That, when we want to talk about salvation, that's what we talk about. For the Jews, the great salvation moment was the exodus from Israel. And they would always look back to that moment. And they, would, they shared a meal, uh, um, uh, the Passover meal, which is not just a remembering, but a recreating of that, of that moment. And it is after their salvation, after their rescue from slavery to Pharaoh that God leads them to Mount Sinai where he gives them the law. And the order there is always important, always important to remember. They are rescued and then they are given the law. They are saved and then they are given the law. For a long time, Christians grew up being taught that the Jews were very focused on keeping the law because they thought then they could get right with God. That's the wrong order of things. They were saved and then they were given the law. So the law, keeping the law becomes an expression of gratitude for being saved. Keeping the law becomes a marker that you're among the people who had been saved. Do you see? The, order of, the ordering of things matter because neither Judaism nor Christianity is a philosophical religion driven foremost by ideas and thoughts and reflections. It's driven by God's work in this world, then, now, in the future, and that story of God's work in this world needs to be remembered in order. So, back to verse 6. 
So he reminds them that God appointed Moses, God appointed Aaron, God brought them out of Egypt. And then Samuel says, now then stand here because I am going to confront you with evidence before Yahweh as to all the righteous acts performed by Yahweh for you and your ancestors. You might say, well, do they really need to be reminded? Let me tell you, they do need to be reminded. It's really what the prophets do all the way through. Do we need to be reminded of what God does for us? Darn tootin' we do. Darn tootin'. <laughs> yes, of course we do. You know, you come here to church on Sunday, maybe you come to a Bible study, maybe you help out at the food pantry on Thursday or Sunday, whatever it is you might do. Think of all the rest of your life that's lived in a world out there that's telling you other things, other stories, other ways of understanding the world that you live in. Who's done what for you? So of course we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. And they need to be reminded. Okay, verse 8. After Jacob entered Egypt, this is the story in Genesis, because of the famine, Jacob, um, Joseph with the magic technicolor dream coats already there, Jacob and the family come to Egypt to avoid starvation. They cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. That is a shorthand of a considerable part of the book of Genesis and the first part of the book of Exodus. But they forgot Yahweh, their God. So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines, the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to Yahweh and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken Yahweh, and we've served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Those are what's going on there. God is reminding them of all the times they were defeated in battle and conquered because they had abandoned God, because they had been faithless, because they had taken up the worship of pagan gods and goddesses. That's who. Baal is a pagan god, Ashtoreth is a pagan god, goddess, right? That is the key, that's the key sin across the Old Testament is the people's abandonment of God and embracing of these pagan gods and goddesses instead. Building altars to the pagan gods and goddesses, worshiping them, bringing all of their rituals and sacred stones and all this other stuff um, into the land of Israel. And if you read the prophets, that's what they're constantly telling, telling the people, here's what you've done. You have been faithless. You have abandoned God. So, in verse 11, God is going to talk about the book of Judges, the time of the Judges, which is when God was raising up judge after judge, person after person, who would lead the Israelites in battle against their enemies. Verse 11, Then Yahweh sent Jerubbaal, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel. Though Samuel does no leading in battle. Others are, not named here, Deborah. Love to meet her. A woman who was a judge of Israel, you know, more than a thousand years before Jesus. That would be cool to meet her. Um, Gideon is another one, right? 
But here he names a few. Yahweh sent Jerubbaal, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though Yahweh your God was your king. Now here, look at him. He's magnificent. <laughs> the king you have chosen, the one you ask for. See, Yahweh has set a king over you, and man, oh man, he looks good. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow Yahweh your God, good. Good, good, good. So let's talk about fear of the Lord for a moment. I haven't done this in a while. There are certain, in English, there are certain two-word phrases that mean one thing. Like mass transit. Mass transit, two words, has one meaning. Fear of the Lord in Hebrew is two words, means one thing. It doesn't mean that you're running terrified from God. It is that you understand that God is God and you are not. It is like you are in a rowboat at the bottom of Niagara Falls and God is the falls. It's you standing on a mountaintop and you realize you're like this and God is the cosmos. The proper fear of God is the proper, proper awe of God holding the proper awe of God, the proper reverence of God, but it's grounded in this acknowledgement and recognition that God is God and we are not. And in my class on Sunday, I just briefly touched on this. God is not a better version of ourselves, which we sometimes can easily fall into. God is not a better version of us. God is God. And then there's us. And, and, and it's easy to kind of see God as just, well, you know, God, God is able to do all these wonderful things that I can't do, but he's basically a, a better version of me. That's not, God is vast. The astonishing part isn't so much God's vastness once you grasp that God created all that is. The, the astonishing part is that God would be born in human flesh, born to a young um, woman from from Galilee so he's saying yeah okay now here you wanted a king you have a king you God's given you a king he's big he's strong he's tall he's handsome if you fear the Lord if you remember that God is God and you're not and you hold God in the proper respect and awe and serve him and obey him and don't rebel against his commands goodness do what he says it's God and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow Yahweh your God, good! Exclamation point, exclamation point. But if you do not obey Yahweh, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you, as it was against your ancestors. God's hand, okay, so let's talk about this. Is this arbitrary on God's part? I think there are a lot of times in my life I thought some of it was just arbitrary. God you know, you got to do what God says because God says do it. No. 
why does why does God say don't do certain things because they are harmful God can't abide sin because it's harmful it 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 destroys people sin destroys relationships whether it's with each other or with God the the remember we did a series I think we preached it as well as I did I think I, I did a first in my class a series on the glittering vices Oh, all those attractive things that are out there, the, you know, the greed and the lust and all this other stuff that really, in truth, consume so much of this world. They're all harmful. They're harmful to our physical being. They're harmful to our souls. They don't reflect the way God, the way God created us to live. And if we pursue them, if we live in a world in which the glittering vices dominate, we can't be surprised by all of the ill consequences that flow from it. Physically, mentally, socially, suicide, um, depression, anxiety, all of these consequences of not living in the way that God taught us to live. Mike? You can say that Samuel is reminding you Israelites, what Moses had told their Yeah, I mean, what, what Samuel says parallels what Moses says and parallels what every prophet says. The word the prophet brings in the future are basically going to be these words. You need to return to God. You need to get your act together. <laughs> right? You need to be faithful to God. And if you don't, you are going to bear the consequences of those choices. There's a great verse in the book of Ezekiel. When God says, you know, I'm going to turn their sin back on their own heads. Which is just a way of saying we bear the consequences of the choices that we make. You know, in my view, I, I, I sometimes wonder if I see things merely through the eyes of a 72-year-old man, but I agree with Peggy Noonan that we are making our children grow up in ever more poisonous water. And those are choices we make. And those choices have consequences. And if we will listen to people, they, they, see it, they see it happening among teenagers, among teenage girls in particular. They see what's happened with the, the dominations of screens and social media, which have some good in them, but you only need to look at the rates of suicide, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and the rest of it in teenagers, particularly in girls, and realize that, wow, 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 this is, it's not, it's not going well. And so here Samuel just says to him, look, if, you, if God loves you, if you do, if you live as the God who loves you created you to live, if you follow his commands, because that's what they are, this is how to live as you were created to live, then it will go well. But if you don't, hmm. God's hand will be against you because God's hand is against sin. Do you want a God who doesn't care? 
about sin, about anger, about unrighteous anger, about murder, about violence, about children being abducted, anything that you want to think about. You want to you want to put your faith and trust in a God who's indifferent to all of that wrong in the world? I don't. That's, that's all that's being said here. Thoughts, questions? Okay. I was kind of on a roll there for a second, wasn't I? <laughs> I used to be able to work some of that out when I preached every week, but I can't do that now, so. Okay, verse 16. Now then, stand still and see this great thing Yahweh is about to do before your eyes. Okay? And so, this, this big sign is going to come. I'm going to talk about that. Is it not wheat harvest now? So it's a time, so we now know that the time this is happening is during the wheat harvest. Anybody here a wheat farmer, planter? Okay. Samuel says, I will call on Yahweh to send thunder and rain and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord and you ask for a king. Just, it's just like this reminder. Now I was one time, I spent a summer up in Wyoming collecting samples of underground water for Exxon, for uranium exploration. And I was out in the wild one day and it started to pour. And it poured all day long and the roads became impassable because they were all dirt and clay. And I got stuck like three times. But I saw what those storms did to a wheat field. And all the wheat was lying flat on the ground. It had knocked it all down, these huge wheat fields that had all been knocked down flat by this crazy, crazy summer storm. And here this is a sign for the people about, about reminding them who God is. You know, I'm often asked, well, you know, why doesn't God just give a sign today? First of all, I think God gives many signs but Jesus got it right, unsurprisingly. Jesus got it right when he basically said, you know, I could die, be raised in three days, and people still wouldn't believe. Right? Stop asking me for signs. Stop asking me for signs. It's not about signs. You don't need signs. It's right before your eyes. We have scripture here. Jesus is resurrected. Hallelujah. It's easy to explain away signs. It's easy to ignore signs. If you want to ignore God, you could ignore God regardless of what the sign is. This particular sign, is this going to mean that this sign right here is going to mean that the Israelites are going to stay faithful to God during all the coming years and decades and centuries? <laughs> no. Verse 18, Then Samuel called on Yahweh, and that same day Yahweh sent thunder and rain, so all the people stood in awe. You could put that with the fear word. They're in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. Does this mean that they are all ready to give up their king? Nah. They want what they want. We want what we want. The people all said to Samuel, pray to Yahweh your God for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added to all of our other sins the evil of asking for a king. 
in the book of Samuel, there's this whole, there's this whole strand of anti-monarchy writing. Okay? And scholars like to make careers of saying, well, this strand of this kind of writing came from one place, and this strand of this anti-monarchical writing came from someplace else, and yada, yada. Yeah, I'm a less complicated person. There will be good things that come from a king, having a king, but it's a terrible choice that they made. A terrible choice and it's not going to work out well not even with the wise King Solomon the wise King Solomon is going to put Israel on a path of ruin okay yes Yes. So he recognized Yahweh. Why did not the people accept his reasoning and go back to God as the king? Since Saul is actually abdicating his responsibility because he said it was all God. That, that he, he's giving credit to God. He doesn't yeah. say he doesn't say I'm going to step down as king. No. He just says I'm giving. This is really God's victory. But we have politicians who do that all the time. Okay, and so the people, the people are going to sign on for this, but they're, they're not going to live up to it, you see. That, and even Saul is soon going to have a very disappointing moment, several very disappointing moments. Um, and in all of it, we can see that even if it's, it, what is it like? In the, it's like in the biblical context. The story to remember about this is that after um, God leads the people out of Egypt and they get to Mount Sinai and Moses goes up and he comes down and there's the law and the Ten Commandments and all the rest of it. The people are asked three times, are you ready? Are you signing on? They say yes. Are you ready to enter into this covenant with God? Yes. Are you ready? Yes. And what do they do next? They get tired of waiting for Moses to come down and they build the golden calf. So we are sadly complex people who would seem to sign on, you know, for the relationship with God that we desire and run out the back door and do exactly what God told us not to do. But you said God uh, ah, God did select Saul. Does that mean Saul's gonna gonna be some? Is he gonna be like perfect? Do we? Does it say God saw Saul's heart? Does it even say that? But he is Saul. He is God's choice. So, what do you need to remember? Is the emphasis in this account going forward on Saul or is it going to be on David? It's going to be on David. Saul is merely the precursor to David. And just, you know, 
there are a lot of times I, I want to also say, well, why does God do this? Why does God do that? Why does God do this? If you can find a reasonable, some reasonable explanation, give us to, to us in scripture, well, fine. But often I can't with the questions I have. Well, why? And sometimes I just, why did he choose Saul? Because Saul's about to make the first mistake. He's, he's about to do, it's sort of like an episode of Saul Knows Best. <laughs> That's bad, isn't it? That, that was good, really? Okay. Better than the other one? Yeah, yeah, better than ever Saulers. Yeah. So so I, I don't I, I don't know. But we're not told that Saul was a man after God's own heart. We're not even told that he was the desire of God's heart, as David will be. But he did choose him. He did choose him. So let's just read on and see what else we find out about Saul, and maybe we'll get some clues as to why why God chose Saul. <laughs> Knowing, if you know the story at all, Saul turns out to be a disappointment. And so Samuel has to go and anoint a successor. And that's going to be David, who at the beginning of the story is almost the antithesis to Saul. He's this young, little, bare-chested sheep herder out in the backyard. Okay, so... He doesn't stay that way. No, does he become a big strapping man? <laughs> if you can't hear Patty, she said he doesn't stay that way. I've been to Florence. Yes, well, could be the figment of somebody's imagination there, Patty. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that's my wife. So, what do we have? What do we have? So if we will accept that there are these, that there's this strain of Saul as king and God anoints him and the people through the picking of lots, but underneath it is this other anti-monarchy strain and they are just fitted here together. I assume that the writers and editors and compilers of this know what they're doing that they're doing this for a reason. That there is nothing here that is unambiguous except for the call to follow God and to keep his commands. That's unambiguous. But Saul the king? We're not, we weren't even told that he was a really smart guy or a wonderful guy or a good administrator. Those words will be used to talk about it a man who makes terrible choices, a man named Jeroboam after the rebellion um, and the civil war after Solomon dies. All we get on Saul was that he was tall, strong, good looking. That's why I used the Gaston slide. That's what we know about Saul? Okay. So, in verse 19, they pray to, they, they say to Samuel, pray to Yahweh. So that we won't die because in addition to our other sins, we have done this evil of asking for a king. Hook back to, connected back to the moment when God says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. That's a, that's a poignant gulping 
That's, oh, they're rejecting me, God says. So Samuel replies to them, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from Yahweh, but serve Yahweh with all your heart. It is what? It is a call to repentance. It's never too late. Yes, you've done this. You've re you rejected God and demanded a human king. You rejected God and demanded a human king. But that's done. Sort of like, you know, what? Like, you can't undo that. Right? You can't undo that. Try to be in life. Try to be a forward-looking person. You can't undo what's been done. You have done all this evil. Samuel acknowledges. Yet do not turn away from Yahweh. Serve Yahweh with all your heart. Do not turn away and run after those useless idols. Those idols which are human sculptures dedicated to figments of one's spiritual imagination. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. They don't, I mean the idol exists, but the God doesn't. The goddess doesn't. It's just a piece of wood. It's a stone carving. For the sake of his great name, Yahweh will not reject his people because Yahweh was pleased to make you his own. God is committed to these people. And as bad as it is here, and it's not that, it's going to get a whole lot worse in the coming centuries to where you, but God made a promise first to Abraham. And God entered into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And God is relentlessly, doggedly determined to keep that promise and to finally how does God keep that promise in Jesus Jesus is the faithful Jew who will live up to the covenant who will love God and love others every day and in every way Jesus is the incarnation is 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 the moment when you can see that yes God made all these promises but God I'm, I'm opening a box with an engagement ring this is not an alligator I'm opening a box with an engagement ring when you open the box that has the ring you go whoa look what's inside what's inside the box in Romans 1 16 and 17 is God's righteousness revealed in Jesus because Jesus is God's righteousness he shows that God not only made promises but has now kept those promises. But all the territory of a thousand years, more than a thousand years, between this moment and Jesus is largely the story of a people who will not be faithful to God. And they will not love God, and they will not love neighbor, and they will not take care of the widows and orphans, they will not do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God, as the prophet Micah urged them to when he brought God's word. Verse 22. For the sake of his great name, Yahweh will not reject his people, because Yahweh was pleased to make you his own. 
As for me, this is Samuel, far be it from me that I should sin against Yahweh by failing to pray for you. That's interesting, isn't it? I guess, hmm. I guess this is kind of an obvious point, but if somebody asks you to pray for them, you should. And have I ever thought of that, uh, failing to do so as a sin against God? Maybe I haven't, but maybe I should. You see, because that's exactly what that's exactly what Samuel says. Far be it from Isha that I should sin against Yahweh by failing to pray for you as they ask him to do. Hmm, that's one to stash away for a sermon. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. Samuel, the prophets. They're all teachers of what is good and right because they are teachers who are bringing to them, reminding them of what God has set up as good and right. So verse 24, we'll finish up in the next two verses. But be sure to fear the Lord. He is God and you are not. And you need to live your life in awe and reverence of God. And serve Him faithfully with all your heart consider what great things he has done for you yet if you persist in doing evil doing wrong both you and your king will perish um, and I'll, I'm going to close with this image I've used it before one of my favorite Old Testament scholars is a man named Terence Fredheim. He says, look, there's not some direct link of moral causation in the Old Testament. You can't point to all these direct things even if you want. He said it's more like this. It's more like there's a fabric of moral causation. <coughs> if you do good, it leads to good things. If you do bad, it leads to bad things. It's like a fabric of moral causation, and it isn't tightly woven like silk. He says, it's kind of more like burlap, right? Which is probably my experience in life as well. And the Mo Samuel here, the prophets later, are always urging them back to God, but reminding them of the lived consequences of ignoring God's and God's teachings. So, any final thought or question before I, I kind of didn't leave much time today for that. Miss Patty. One of the people that we're watching online said that with your little gaff, never trumper, he almost wrecked his truck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. I thought it would be funny, the never solvers, but there we go. Yeah, 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 anyway. <laughs> Okay, all right, very funny. Charlotte? I have a PSA for all of the math people and foodies in the room. It is Pi Day. Yeah. Today is Pi Day. Okay, because it is March, March 14th. Okay. 3.14. Tomorrow? Tomorrow is? The Ides of March. And Friday is? St. Patrick's Day. Oh, March is so much fun. 
would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, let each of us pledge in our own hearts to follow you, to be faithful to you, to do what is right, avoid what is wrong, to understand that it's you who teaches us what is right. Help us to be evermore Christ-like in the way that we relate to other people and indeed in following, in following you. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Adios, everybody.